Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore-Major. In this episode, we're beginning a new book. It's called Rakundra's First Cruise, and it's by the famous British children's author, Arthur Ransom. It's from 1923, and uh, I'm excited to find it here in the Mariner's Library because uh, Arthur Ransom was such a childhood favourite for me. I know nothing about this book, so we'll be learning about it together. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. For $5 a month, you help support the podcast. But starting just at the beginning of last week, here at the beginning of 2023, I've started to add another book which you can access over on Patreon. At the moment, we're reading John Macefield's The Taking of the Gry, another book I've never heard of by that author. And uh, it seems to be going down pretty well. So supporting the podcast, but also access to extra material. There also we have the Crewcast, which is an exclusive uh, podcast for Patreon supporters, um, which doesn't go out anywhere else. So extra content for that $5 a month, you're getting something like 25, no more than that, good Lord, nearly 40 episodes a month for $5 a month. What a bargain. Okay, well, if you consider that, it's at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But it's my pleasure as always to start a new book and share with you more knowledge from sailing's history that otherwise would get lost. And we do it now with Arthur Ransom and Rakundra's first cruise. Chapter one, the building of Rakundra. Houses are but badly built boats, so firmly aground that you cannot think of moving them. They are definitely inferior things, belonging to the vegetable, not the animal world, rooted and stationary, incapable of gay transition. I admit, doubtfully, as exceptions, snail shells and caravans. The desire to build a house is the tired wish of a man content thenceforward with a single anchorage. The desire to build a boat is the desire of youth, unwilling yet to accept the idea of a final resting place. It is for that reason, perhaps, that when it comes, the desire to build a boat is one of those that cannot be resisted. It begins as a little cloud on a serene horizon. It ends by covering the whole sky so that you can think of nothing else. You must build to regain your freedom and always you comfort yourself with the thought that yours will be the perfect boat, the boat that you may search the harbours of the world for and not find. That is the story of Rakundra. Years of planning went into her before ever a line was drawn on paper. She was to be a cruising boat that one man could manage if need be, but on which three could live comfortably. She was to have a writing table and bookcase, a place for a typewriter, broad bunks where a man might lay himself down and rest without bruising a knee and elbow with each unconsidered movement. She was to carry her dinghy on deck to avoid that troublesome business of towing which has brought so many good dinghies to their latter end. She should not be fast, but she should be fit to keep the sea when other little boats were scuttling for shelter. In fact, she was to be the boat that every man would wish, who likes to move from port to port, a little ship in which, in temperate climates, a man might live from year's end to year's end. Then came friendship with a designer, the best designer in the Baltic, whose racing boats carried away prize after prize in the old days before the war, whose little cruisers put to sea when steamers stayed in port. And after that, Rakundra began to exist on paper. There were the lines of the stout nose of hers, of that stern like the sterns of the Norwegian pilot cutters. 
On paper, I could sit at the writing table a full yard square in the cabin where, the measurements proved it, I could stand up and walk about with an unbruised head. On paper was that little cockpit where one man sitting alone could control the little ship as she made her steady way over the waters. Then came the sail plan, after how many alterations? A snug rig. You could reach the end of the mizzen boom from the deck and there was no bowsprit. The size of the mizzen was such that you could keep the sea and keep up to the wind with mizzen and foresail alone. The balance of the sails was such, again on paper, that if you wished you could sail under mainsail only, or under main and mizzen, so that you could take down your staysail before coming into port, and so have a clear deck for playing with warps and anchor chain. Rakundra, on paper, grew in virtue daily. It had come to such a pass that I woke from dreams at night, sitting in that paper cockpit, with a paper tiller under my arm, steering a paper ship across uncharted seas. Rakundra had to be built. There was no escape. But my friend, the designer Otto Eggers, lived in Raval, and since the war has had no yard, or he would have built her himself, since the two years of paper boat building had made him share my madness. But there was no help for it. He could not build. I had to build somewhere else, and since I was to be in Riga, came to terms with a Riga builder. I pass over as briefly as I may the wretched story of the building and the hundred journeys over the ice to the little shed in which Rakundra slowly turned from dream into reality. She was to have been finished in April. She was promised to me on May the 1st, May the 15th, May the 20th, and at short intervals thenceforward. She was launched, a mere hull, on July 28th. I went for the hundredth and first time to the yard and found Rakundra in the water. The lettish workman by trickery got the builder and me close together, planted us suddenly on a wooden bench which they had decked with bean flowers stolen from a neighbouring garden, and lifted us, full of mutual hatred, shoulder high. The ship was launched. Yes, but the summer was over, and there had been whole weeks when Mukundra had not progressed at all while the builder and his men did other work. He promised, then, that she would be ready to put to sea on August the 3rd. She was not. On August the 5th, I went to the yard and took away the boat unfinished. Not a sail was setting properly. There were no cleats fixed. The centreboard was half up, half down, and firmly stuck. But under power and sails, somehow or other, I got the ship away and took her round to the lake and had her out on the yacht club slip, removed the centreboard, had a new one built, relaunched her, and just over a fortnight later, turned the carpenters out of her and put to sea. But there is no use in reminding myself now of those miserable, angry months of waiting, in remembering the lacquer that was not put on, the ungalvanized nails that I had laboriously to remove from the cabin work and replace with brass screws. The hull of Rakundra was right enough, and by the time we had finished with her, we had put right the lesser matters that were wrong. Fools build and wise men buy. Well, I shall say never again, and in all probability shall never have money enough to buy. Nor shall I have need, for Rakundra turned out to be all that I had hoped. We took her to sea in the Baltic autumn. We had her at sea when big steamers reported damage from the heavy weather, and never for a minute did she show the smallest sign of disquiet. Whether that was good enough for us was good enough for her, and when the equinox flung her home with the last flick of its mighty tail, she sailed through the rollers on the bar and up the troubled Davina, demure, serene, neat as if she was returning from a day's trip in June. 
For those who are interested in such things, there is a detailed description of Rakundra at the end of this book. Here it is enough to say that she is a centerboard catch just under 30 feet long with a small auxiliary motor. It is a 5 horsepower motor, but possibly on account of my inexperience, it seemed to need 40 horsepower to start it, for which reason I did not use it at all during the journey. Chapter 2 The Crew And now for the crew. There were three of us. There was the cook, to whom I think is due most of the credit for the ease and pleasantness of our voyage. She can take her trick at the tiller if needed be, but that, for her, is holiday. All the hard work was hers. She cooked a meal. It was eaten. She washed up, and just as the dry dishes reached the rack, one or other of that hungry company would inquire whether or no the time for the next meal was drawing near. She cooked another meal. As its last remains were cleared away, as sure as fate, she would catch the eye of one or the other of us looking hungrily at the clock. We, of course, navigating, sailing, had our strenuous moments, after which would follow long hours of plain and easy steering. She, on the other hand, thanks to our appetites, became a sort of juggler, keeping plates, cups, saucepans, kettles, teapot, coffee pot, thermos flasks and primuses in a whirl of perpetual motion. We, in harbour, idled, fished and watched the barometer and the weather, sustaining our self-respect by oracular utterance. She, in harbour, as at sea, never for a moment was able to give those pots and pans a rest. She might have been dancing on swords and juggling with knives where an instant's pause meant death. We saw her throughout the day in a cloud of cooking, and the steersman at night, looking down the companion, saw always busy hands cleaning obstinate aluminum, and he who rested on his bunk heard, as he turned in comfortable sleep, the chink of crockery and the splash of washing up. The primuses roared continually like the blast furnaces in northern England, and we, relentless and without shame, called continually for food. Of the three of us, the cook, without a doubt, was the one who worked her passage. The second of us was the ancient mariner. On the stint sea at Riga was a tiny harbour for small boats, where, during the long months of waiting for Rakundra, I had kept my dinghy. There, in a little wooden hut on a raft, lived an old seaman, the harbour master of this Lilliput port. On my first coming, he had spoken a few words of English, but gradually, day by day, the language came back to him, and with the language, memories of a life he had almost forgotten. Many, many years ago, he had sailed from Southampton on the famous sunbeam of Lord Brassey. He had spent 15 years of his youth in Australia. He had shared in the glorious runs of the old tea clippers. He had been a seaman in the Thermopylae, which he called the Thermopylae, and had raced in her against the Kudzak, in which odd Russianized name I recognized the Kati Sark. And now he was taking care of 10-foot dinghies, and every morning made a voyage across the lake in a rowing boat with a leg of mutton sail to bring the milk from a farm on the other side. He took care of my sailing dinghy as if she had been an ocean liner, made her a padded wharf to preserve her varnish, and spoke of her quick passages across the little lake as if she were a clipper returning from the horn. He and I became friends, and long before Rakundra was finished, knowing that I was planning a voyage to England, he went to see her in her shed, and, returning, begged me to take him with me. I'm an old man, he said, and I should like once more to go to the sea before it is too late. And I, of course, agreed with joy, for there is no such rigour in the Baltic as the ancient mariner, who has known what it was to sail on the Thermopylae in the days of her pride. 
Then, as the months passed and we knew that the builder had made the English voyage impossible this year, it was decided that he should come with Rakundra on her first cruise. He spoke of Rakundra always as our ship, and as we sailed, his ambitions for her grew with every day. When we are in the Mediterranean, he would say, we must make a canvas double roof for the cabin or it will be too hot in there. And then she'll find the long waves of the Atlantic child's play after this. It won't be till she's near the American coast that she'll have anything as bad. He, that ancient mariner, was on this miniature cruise as happy as a boy. Nothing would make him leave the ship. He never went ashore, except in Helsingfors, to look for a particular size of sailmaker's needles, unobtainable in Riga, and in smaller ports to bring water to refill our casks. Sure, he would say, I have enough of shore at home. He was a very little man, with a white beard and a head as bold as my own. Sometimes on board he wore a crimson stocking cap with a tassel, when he looked like a gnome or a pixie or a fairy cobbler. If Queen Mab herself had gone to sea, she could not find a fitter mariner. The third of us was Rakundra's master and owner, who writes those words even now with the swelling pride that he felt when he first saw them on the ship's papers handed to him by the Lettish Customs Office, master and owner of the Rakundra. Does any man need a prouder title or description? In moments of humiliation, those are the words that I shall whisper to myself for comfort. I ask no others on my grave. Chapter 3. The Start On August the 19th I got rid of the carpenters near 10 o'clock in the evening, and spent the better part of the night in clearing overboard the mess they had left behind them. A good deal of the mess they had, after the manner of carpenters, built into the boat, and I shall not be able to get rid of it until during the winter I undo much of the work they did. Much of the work they were supposed to do, they had not done, but I had suffered enough from them and learnt that they were prepared to work for another two years on the boat if I should allow them. If only to save her from them, I had to put to sea. The inside of the boat was unpainted, except that I had slapped a single coat over the cabin walls and cupboards, doing one side first and, when that was dry, shifting all the litter across the cabin and painting the other side. An incredible amount remained to be done, but it was already very late for cruising in these parts, and the last of the yachts that had left Riga bridges had returned from the winter before we ever left that little harbour in the lake. So though locks did not work, though there were no fastenings to the forehatch and none to the companionway, though forecastle and kitchen were still raw unpainted wood, cleats were lying about fastened to the decks, though we had only half a dozen blocks worthy of the name, the rest being the clumsiest makeshifts, we knew that if we did not start at once, we should not start till next year. We three looked her all over and decided to get away anyhow and finish things on the voyage. I slept on Rakundra that night, as I had done for the last two weeks, but for the first time slept in a cabin not half full of shavings and carpenter's tools. At 5.30 in the morning of August the 20th, I jumped overboard for the last time in the stint sea and swam round Rakundra as usual while porridge was cooking on the Primus. An hour later, the ancient mariner came on board, followed presently by the cook. The wind was northwest and we were able to slip with it out of the little harbour and reach the whole way down the lake to the entrance to the Mulgarben, which connects the lake with the Davina River. There was not much wind, and we had time to screw in the cleats for the staysail sheets before we had any tacking to do. All three sails were setting abominably, as we had no battens for them, the builder having failed us. 
I had decided to make the trip to Raval without them, knowing that I could there get them properly made. The entrance to the Mulgraben is narrow, and in tacking through it, Rakunda refused to stay and ran her centreboard into the mud. We got off, however, by pulling the board up a few, after which there was no more shallows, and we crawled very slowly from side to side, between the canal wharves and the balks on the other side, which cage a sea of floating timbers. A British steamship, the Baltimore, was loading in the Mulgraben, and Captain Wally, known Rakundra from her since he visited her in the builder's shed, was on the bridge as we struggled by. The ancient mariner and I had agreed that two leads were unnecessary, and had therefore each left his own lead at home. So I hailed Wally as we passed and begged the loan of a five-pounder. Rakundra went on zigzagging obstinately through the narrow canal, while I tumbled into the dinghy and dropped back and hung onto the Baltimore's ladder, while the lead was found and lowered away to me. We should often have been in a sore pickle without it. I thought we should probably be all day getting through the customs at the far end of the Mulgraben, and therefore asked Captain Wally to luncheon on the Rakundra, and he, who accepted, must afterwards have had the blackest thoughts of me, for as it turned out, we were held up for only half an hour, and decided to work on to the winter harbour at the mouth of the Divina, hoping to make our peace with Wally when we should meet him in Raval, where the Baltimore was to call. The customs house at Mulgraben is a little yellow wooden building with flowers in the window and a wicket gate in a wooden paling on the quay. It stands at the corner where the Red Dvina joins the Mulgraben and we let go anchor off it on the windward side of the channel. I hurriedly discarded my disreputables and put on creased trousers and newly piped clayed shoes in order to make up as far as I could for the unurance of the Rakundra, a trait of hers which is normally our joy but is likely to increase the difficulty of dealing with officials. Rakundra lay there, a regular little ship, a proper contrabandista, as scribed, looking with topsides and a sharp stern exactly like any one of a hundred Baltic smugglers, while her owner and master paddled himself ashore in the very neatest of new varnished dinghies, looking as idly rich he was in reality busy and poor. It was ten o'clock precisely, and as I had given this time in arranging yesterday with the chief customs officer in Riga, I felt our punctuality as a sort of moral pipe clay, and, papers in hand, tapped at the door of the little yellow house with the most satisfactory confidence. I found there a charming young man who talked English and gave me a certificate of clearance without any fuss. He rang up the dock police on the telephone. A harbour policeman, together with a customs officer from the town, had arrived as the clock was striking and everybody being delighted by his own and everybody else's punctuality, the rarest of all things in Eastern Europe, and this being the first occasion on which a foreign-going yacht had been cleared here, passports were stamped in two minutes, another certificate added to the first, after which all three officials left the little wooden house with me to visit Rakundra, and by drinking vodka on board, to fulfil the last formalities. When they saw my dinghy swinging like a nutshell below the lofty wooden landing stage, they refused emphatically to travel in her, wrongly thinking that she would carry only one. They took a boat of their own. I rowed off as hard as I could and got a bottle of vodka open and mugs on the cabin table before they arrived. We gave them bread and butter, ham and vodka, and they gave us good wishes and the completest freedom from the red tape in which had they could have tapped as spiders tangle flies. Twenty minutes after our first arrival, they were pushing off again and we were free. Our papers stamped. Rakundra cleared for foreign parts, and already, as it were, a Elated by this, we gave only half a thought to Wally, 
There was still so much to do on board. More cleats to be fixed. Backstays rigged, brass bollards substituted for the sharp-edged rubbish with which she had been disfigured, and we were all for pressing on down to the river mouth, to the winter harbour, where we could lie in peace, finish our work, and be ready to slip out into the gulf the moment the wind should favour us. We beat out first into the broad Davina River. There was very little current to help us, though I remember early in the spring the current was so strong that sailing upstream in the Frieda, a little trading cutter, against a local smack, the race was decided by the fact that the other boat passed us stern first, going backwards while we were just able to hold our ground, and that in a good wind, with the water foaming under the bows of both boats. On this occasion, we were not so fortunate, and while we were wearily beating down the river, we were passed with the utmost ease by a little racing sloop from Riga, sailed by a friend, the cavalry sailor, a young man who had often amused us during the summer by his habit of coming aboard straight from his barracks and wearing high spurs when on his boat. He went by at what seemed to be a great speed and turned into the Baldera, a tributary of the Divina, after hailing us and wishing us good luck. He wouldn't pass us like that if we were at sea in anything of a wind, the ancient, had to be comforted for it is not pleasant to be passed, even by a racing boat. There was plenty of shipping in the Divina, and several coasters were lying at anchor near the mouth of the river, evidently thinking the wind was not done with us yet. The sight of them confirmed us in our intention of stopping in the winter harbour for long enough to get things shipshape, and at ten minutes to two, Rakundra, after raising our spirits by showing what she could do with the wind behind her when we put the helm up to run back into the harbour, was swinging to her anchor in a good berth near the Red Railway Bridge. There were clouds in the northwest after luncheon, but we had a few hours of warm sunshine, and while we worked on the boat, the cook went ashore. She said that after seeing what we could do in the way of luncheon, she was afraid she had not enough provisions. We told her that there was a time-honoured rule of the sea. If grub runs out, eat the cook. She went ashore in the dinghy with little hope as it was Sunday, but came back with eggs, black currants, radishes, an extra hunk of cheese and some more potatoes to find Rakundra really looking more like herself with backstays rigged, boards for the side lights fixed to the shrouds, the compass screwed in its place, gimbals set for the primer stove and the cabin lamp re-screwed on the case of the centreboard chain which runs up through the cabin roof position where it could no longer split the ceiling by excessive fervour. But while she had been away, the weather had grown worse. Dark enamel clouds in long banks were drifting up. The wind, still against us, was increasing and rain was on its way towards us. A Dane and a German had joined the anchored coasters in the river and we were ready to accept their judgment and spend one more night before putting to sea. The cook started the primus and the ancient and I went on with our deck, but, nervous for my new sails, I broke off to put the covers on the main and mizzen unshackled the staysail sheets and stuffed the rolled-up staysail into a canvas kit bag. I had just finished as the first drops fell. The wind suddenly grew really strong. Rakundra snubbed at her chain once, but once only, for we were letting out more chain before she could do it again. And then came rain. Rainbows, lightning, thunder and squalls all together, and we were glad to close the companion hatch behind us and settle down to a meal in the cabin, and then to smoke and look at charts, and be glad we had not started. It grew dark, and through the cabin windows we could see the lights of the coasters and the foreigners heaving violently in the swell that came in from the river mouth. The dinghy lay astern, fast by her painter to one of the newly fixed cleats. 
Would she be stolen? I asked, remembering the loss of her mainsail in Lehepe Bay and the many tales the ancient had told me of such lamentable happenings. It is better here than in the mill grubbin, said he. Now, if we had stayed there, we should have had to put a watch on her all night. He went on to tell a story of a German captain who put his head out in answer to a call out of the dark and found a man in a boat alongside, holding up the end of a rope. Good rope, sir, says the man, and going cheap. I don't really know myself how much there is of it, but for so much I'll sell you the coil. The captain looks at the seas that it was right enough. He takes that rope on board, the man in the boat passing it to him hand over hand. There was a big coil and he paid for it and turned in. In the morning, he calls the mate and tells him what he had made in the night. As good as rope, says he, as ever I brought with me from Hamburg. Why, says he, with one foot on the cabin floor and the sleep drooping from his eyes, it might be the same rope and for a quarter the price. And indeed, it was the same rope, for some thieves in the Mulgraben had just taken the end of the rope off the foredeck and brought it along aft outside and sold it on inboard again. And everybody in the Mulgraben was telling the story afterwards, everybody but one man, and that was the duchy captain who had made such a wonderful bargain. Well, that's the end of today's reading, and I hope you enjoyed it. It brings me so much pleasure to be able to read these books and to bring them back out into the light from dusty library shelves and uh, share with you the fantastic uh, stories which we're, we're seeing unfold here. This book, uh, Rakundra's First Cruise, is 100 years old this year, and yet I think all of us are already able to see that with a great writer like Arthur Ransom, um, you've got some really special way of connecting through to people who love doing the same things we love to do out on a boat, enjoying themselves. So if you like this kind of, if you want to hear more of it, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. $5 a month helps to support this podcast, which goes out 20 times a month. But starting now in January of 2023, there's a whole extra of bread over on Patreon. Um, those are available for patrons of every level. So a whole extra series of books there in the same line and things I'm sure you'll find very enjoyable. So that's patreon.com forward slash support the podcast and get your hands on those extra sailing books. Great. Well, thank you very much for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.